0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a classic episode. This episode, originally published back on September 15th, 2014, it is the first part of a multi-part episode, so we're going to be doing this over the next couple of Fridays. This is titled The History of Area 51, Part 1. Area 51 uh, has gone through, obviously, cycles of infamy as uh, being a top-secret location where all sorts of stuff was going on. Some people just said, okay, well, that's just, it is a top-secret facility, but it's one where regular terrestrial kind of aircraft are being tested. Others were saying, no, 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 Area 51 is a secret base where alien technology exists and is being studied. Uh, so let's listen in on the actual history of Area 51. So uh we decided I, I had talked about doing an episode about Area 51 for years. Threatening might be the better word for it. I've been threatening to do an episode about Area 51 <laughs> For years. And uh, just, it was one of those things that we kept on putting off because it's a, it's a big topic and it's so big that Ben has been very generous with his time. And he and I are going to be doing three episodes mm-hmm. about this subject. So the first two episodes are a history of this facility and what, what is actually documented as having happened there.
1: Ah, yes. The real history, mind you. <laughs>
0: right. The third episode will be the mythology of Area 51 and some of the, Uh, stories that have been attributed to that area, uh, some of which uh, border on um, wackadoodle, I think is a good way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, so we're going to cover all of that. So this episode, we're going to look at the history. And if you've heard the term Area 51, but you've only seen the uh, depictions in pop culture, like in science fiction, Mm -hmm. uh, you probably aren't entirely sure what it is. Now, first of all, Area 51 isn't necessarily the the proper designation for this facility. It's the popular one, mm-hmm. but uh, really it's more often referred to within within um, documents, official documentation, as Groom Lake, mm-hmm. and uh, that's because there's a big dry lake bed in Nevada called Groom Lake, and this facility is built
1: right on there right and it's built there uh, for a reason it's in uh nevada yep. yeah and uh you you've got some great notes on this all the way down to latitude and longitude yes yeah
0: cuz <laughs> cuz this was the thing you know for years and years and years the government would co- would very very carefully disavow any in any knowledge of such a facility, they would say, no, you know, nothing out there exists.
1: Groom lake. What is, what is that? Yeah. Why would you groom a lake? for what
0: purpose? A dry lake. <laughs> you are speaking crazy talk. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, it, but one of the big reasons why it's out there is cause a dry lake bed in Nevada tends to be pretty darn flat. Mm-hmm. And if you want to say have a remote location where you can develop and test secret aircraft and you need that space in order to take off and land the aircraft. Mm. A big dry lake beds a pretty good,
1: uh, you know, location, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's also far enough inland that the, uh, any foreign observers at the time of Groom Lake's construction, yeah, would have a really difficult time observing anything that happened there without being noticed first.
0: Absolutely, because at the time, this is before we get into satellites, right? So yep. if you are trying to spy upon the construction of Area 51, it was built back in the 50s. Then you essentially had to have a spy plane flying over the United States, which was a pretty risky thing to do. Right. Uh, but meanwhile, that's exactly what was going on at Area 51 was the development and testing of spy planes. So it's also known as Homey Airport. That's more, uh, that's a more uh, recent moniker over there. Uh huh. Um, and it's, uh, it's probably, I have it in my notes. I have it as the most famous secret
1: facility (laughs) the most famous worst kept yeah Yeah, it's
0: the it's the secret facility everyone has heard of which Mm -hmm. is kind of funny but but they still manage to keep the actual uh activities within the the facility itself largely secret there have been some reports that have come out some of them are credible some of them are less so sure but it's it's one of those things that that secrecy has also led to some serious issues that we'll get to more in the second part. Some yeah. things that have happened that uh, that bring up the question of accountability. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you be accountable if you can't acknowledge the stuff that goes on at that right. site? Right.
1: right. And uh, it's no wonder we know that whenever there is a lack of transparency we find a plethora, and I'm using that word correctly, yes. of speculation. Absolutely, because we have to fill in the gaps, right? Yeah, it's like a Hitchcock movie. The monster you don't see is always going to be worse than the monster on screen. Absolutely. But let's go to, uh, as, as they say in, uh, Alice in Wonderland, let's start at the beginning. What do you say?
0: Absolutely. So let's say that you are, uh, you are a, a, a country that is involved in a little altercation called World War II. Mm hmm. And as a result, you need to start building out your own military uh, capabilities. Well, the United States was very much concerned with this and started to look for all sorts of places where they could build uh, various uh, airport landing strips for military purposes. So they identified this one spot and you mentioned I had the latitude and longitude. I'm going to go ahead and give it. <laughs> it's at 37 degrees, 14 minutes north latitude and 115 degrees, 48 minutes west longitude, uh, which means it's right. It's within a hundred miles or 161 kilometers mm-hmm. of Las Vegas. Uh, that's, that's to the south of Area 51. And then the closest town is actually called Rachel, Nevada. And that's about 25 miles or 40 kilometers to the north. And, uh, the, the original purpose of the facility, which wasn't really even a facility, it was just a couple of, of landing strips. Right. Like um, more like
1: a little compound or a small airport.
0: Yeah. It was meant to be a training per- place for uh, gunner schools, mm-hmm. for, for people who are actually working on, on gunner positions within aircraft. So it was a training facility and uh, it was created by the
1: Army Air Corps. Right. Notice we didn't say Army Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is before the Air Force
0: was ever a thing. So, yeah, it was Army Air Corps. Uh, they ended up using it, like I said, during the 40s. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, they they essentially, they didn't formally decommission it because there wasn't really enough there to do that.
1: Yeah, they just sort of stopped using it. Yeah,
0: they kind of like, well, the war's done. Mm-hmm. Let's pack up and go. And they left it kind of where it was. Now, that didn't mean that that was the only you, only organization to use that area, mm-hmm. uh, there was uh, something else that happened. So in the 1950s, and this is jumping around a little bit because sure. I don't actually have it right here in my notes, but in the 1950s, two things are going on. One is you have the rise of the Cold War, mm-hmm. which means that now we no longer have an active uh, uh, armed conflict going on, but we do have an escalating political conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union.
1: And a Bunch of spying.
0: Yes, a bunch of spying which would factor in heavily. We also at that same time, on both sides, both the United States and Soviet Union, had an era of developing nuclear weapons, right? Yes, sir. So the part of developing them was testing them to make mm-hmm. sure that one, they worked, and two, you you wanted you wanted other countries to know you had them without knowing specifically what your armament was.
1: Right. And without you explicitly admitting That you had them either,
0: right? It was tricky stuff. So, the the wastelands of Nevada were Mm -hmm. often areas that uh, the Atomic Energy Commission would use to test this stuff. And there was this grid of land that they were using to test various types of atomic weapons, including some that were developed by Edward Teller. Uh Joe McCormick and I recorded an episode about five technologies that were supposed to bring an end to World War, but didn't. <laughs> and yeah. Edward Teller is the father of the hydrogen bomb. So several of his designs were tested in this area. That grid had 30 squares in it, and each square was called an area. All right. Mm-hmm. So you had areas one through area 30. This particular par- parcel of land where the former uh, Army Air Corps facility was was more or less adjacent to a square known as Area 15. So it's possible that the Area 51 name comes mm-hmm. from transposing the 1 and 5 and saying, all right, well, that was Area 15. This is Area 51. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not part of the grid originally. In fact, when when the facility was constructed, the grid had not expanded. It did expand gradually i think it eventually had something like 200 squares to it
1: testing increased and they built the fake towns and everything
0: right right yeah and then you see indiana jones getting the refrigerator i knew
1: i knew we were going to say that yeah Yeah. that's the new jump the shark isn't it
0: yeah yeah there's jump the shark and jump in the fridge (laughs) uh which which did not work out for punky brewster but did work out for indiana jones (laughs) Um, so Mean, while we've got this testing going on in this remote part of Nevada, which I don't know if you're aware of this. Turns out that if you're testing lots of nuclear weapons in an area, mm-hmm. it tends to be a deterrent for people to come snooping around. Oh, that's what we did wrong. <laughs> we weren't, we weren't
1: actively uh, <laughs> testing nuke devices around the office. Oh, yeah. So but, yeah, that's true. There's a, um, there's a profound, Effect, and I know it sounds like we're jokingly uh, noting something that is glaringly obvious, mm-hmm. but uh, even at that time before there had been the ex- before we had had such extensive research on the effects of this sort of weaponry, uh, everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall.
0: Yeah, right. So at that same time, like you were saying. With all the spying going on, and there mm. was a lot of it, we've we've done episodes on tech stuff about spy tech before, mm-hmm. and we've even done episodes on specific spy planes, like the the U two plane being mm-hmm. one of the most famous. Uh, there needed to be some way of developing this technology and testing it without people being aware of it, so that we could maintain that superiority of folks not knowing what we're we are and are not capable of doing. Right. So that led to the Central Intelligence Agency, trying to find a good spot for this. And you might say, wait, the CIA...
1: Aren't they foreign intelligence? They are
0: foreign (laughs) intelligence. So these were going to be mostly spy planes spying on other places, not the United States. Mm -hmm. We have plenty of agencies that are here to spy on us. (laughs) And isn't
1: the Air Force already involved there? So that's
0: what you would think, right? Like, why why the CIA? Why not the Air Force? Well, it comes down to... And Ben, I know you've heard this term black budgets,
1: right? Yeah, (laughs) the the
0: idea that you need to have a budget that is impenetrable. People uh, people approve them, but Mm -hmm. they cannot see what the budgets are actually for. And it's all under the umbrella of national security.
1: And the reason that this exists now, I know these get a tough time yeah. nowadays. And, yeah. and they, they should. There's a great argument for the transparency at this time. Just to be fair, we have to play devil's advocate and say that the argument against transparency is, of course, during the cold war, when people are trying to mask their capabilities, anyone with the right amount of subterfuge and influence could find Uh, something that wasn't a black budget all the way down to individual components, the literal nuts and bolts. So at the time, their argument will be that this is necessity. And if you want something secret, uh, you put it under at this time in American history, you put it under the CIA.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because the Air Force would end up having a budget that was reviewable by Congress. Right. Exactly. And so this would at least mean that everyone in Congress and plus all the congressional aides mm-hmm. would have access to those budgets, which could mean that that's a security risk. That, that information could leak out and it would get into the hands of of uh, of. Foreign agents Mm -hmm. that would end up having the advantage because now they know what we were capable of. By having it as a black budget, you take that out. It Mm -hmm. also means that, again, you don't have that transparency and you leave the world wide open to just speculate on what's actually going on. Right. So there is a there's another edge to that sword. So. The CIA is in charge of this. They work with the Air Force. But I mean, when we talk about testing these planes, it was CIA pilots that were doing
1: the testing. Right. But, not Air Force pilots. It's a yeah. very important distinction. So
0: they were civilians who then got uh classification of top secret uh, access through the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've talked about this before way, way back. But top secret, by the way, does not mean you automatically have access to everything that's Classified top secret.
1: Right. Spot on. Uh, Intelligence at that level is often what they call compartmentalized.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So you have access to one specific branch, Mm -hmm. but anything outside of that, you don't. So you may be able to go to the very furthest links in that branch Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean you have access to everything
1: it does mean for instance so then just to illustrate this the cia pilot let's call him mr smith because that's not a sketchy name no
0: that's that's perfect
1: (laughs) uh mr smith might be they call it being read onto a program so mr smith might be read onto a program for a particular plane or even something as small as just a particular engine or design of a plane yes everything else about that is a mystery, and it is understood that he is not even supposed to pretend that he thought of asking.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to talk about more of the history of Area 51 in just a moment. Everyone who was working at Area 51, whether you were a pilot or an engineer, you were only really allowed to know about whatever it was your specific project was uh, was concerned with, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Even if you're in the private industry, mm-hmm. which also was involved with this. A couple of people who are familiar with this story are probably waiting and they're saying, Jonathan, Ben, sure, the CIA, the Air Force, but why aren't you talking about the people who actually built the planes? So you're talking about Lockheed. Uh, hole in one. So Lockheed is a military
0: contractor, among other things. Mm-hmm. But they do a lot of work with the United States military. And so Lockheed was going to be the, the company that was largely responsible for, for building the planes that were going to be tested at Area 51. Mm-hmm. So when we get down to this point where the CIA is ready to find a site for this, they work with Lockheed. And there is a designer at Lockheed who is absolutely famous in the spy world, uh, Clarence Kelly
1: Johnson. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you, if you've heard some of the stories about this stuff, he's definitely famous in the spy world, but he is a, I think we're a family show here, so I'll just say he is a gosh darn good designer.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, he's the top dog at Lockheed. Jonathan earlier mentioned the U2 spy plane. That is our boy Kelly.
0: Yeah. He also ended up, uh, largely defining skunkworks at Lockheed and we've done an episode on Tech Stuff about skunkworks as mm-hmm. well. Skunkworks now is just a general term that a lot of companies use to describe their secret R&D projects that aren't uh, aren't meant for public consumption. This is stuff that is going to end up becoming part of products maybe 5 or 10 years down the line. Right. But that was defined at Lockheed. That was the top secret development lab where anyone outside of that lab was not aware of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And even people within the lab may only be aware of very small parts of what is going on. So uh, with U2 and Skunkworks, obviously, he had already kind of developed this reputation of being the go to guy mm-hmm. when it comes to this kind of thing. So the CIA consulted with him as well as some other military folks, and they started looking around. Now, Johnson had said that the facility needed to be remote enough to escape casual attention. Yep. So you couldn't have it close to any kind of metropolitan area or or, or settlement. Um, it also had to be close enough to a major city so that you could get supplies for all the stuff you need in order to do the testing, the building, and, the, and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these vehicles were not actually constructed at Area 51. They'd be built in another facility and then would be transported to Area 51 for all the testing. Yeah. But even so... Like, you have to get all the food there, you have to, you know, all the all the basic, the fuel that you would need, mm-hmm. you would have to have all of that shipped to Area 51 in some way. So there were a lot of logistics involved, which meant that it had to be far enough away from a city to avoid uh, notice, but not so far as to make it impossible to get stuff there.
1: Yeah, it had to be inconvenient, but not inaccessible. There's a Goldilocks zone here, uh, sort of like in Star Trek, where everybody's looking for an M-class planet.
0: That's a very good way of putting it. So... As they were looking around, uh, there was a member on the search team named Colonel Osmond Ritland, who had actually trained at the gunnery school that had existed at Groom Lake. Ah. And so he said, hey, you know, there was this place that I had to work at when during World War II that might be worth checking out. And so they ended up going there. And as soon as Johnson saw it, he said that that was the perfect spot. It would mean that they would have to do, obviously, a lot of work to make mm. it ready for it to actually be a test facility. But he said, this, this meets all the requirements I had in mind. So he called it Paradise Ranch.
1: <laughs> right. Which, uh, you have a great note about this.
0: Yeah. It's this, uh, it's a little more attractive than quote, site adjacent to a former nuclear test area, end quote. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even former. It was a current nuclear test area. There were times when the Atomic Energy Commission and later the Nevada mm. test site ended up having to uh, evacuate Area 51 because they were going to be doing some tests and it's possible that wind could carry radioactive particles over toward the facility.
1: I mean, you win some, you lose some, right?
0: Yeah. So uh, the other term you could have used is desolate hellhole, but that also (laughs) not so attractive if you're trying to get uh, civilians interested in helping out. So
1: they, they actually did employ civilians to help construct area 51. Right. Yeah. From, uh, surrounding Las Vegas area and from Rachel, Nevada as yep. well. Yeah.
0: And it meant, it meant that, um, people had to pass some pretty stringent background checks and mm. they had to sign silence oaths. And mm. m- for the most part, people have been really good at keeping those oaths. I mean, there have only been a few people who have ever talked about area 51. Which is pretty amazing because we talk about how it's really hard to keep secrets.
1: Right. Especially, uh, in that, that difficulty ex- increases exponentially the more people involved with the secret. But in this, in this part too, it's important for us to remember that even the people who had signed the secrets didn't really have that much access right. to information. They
0: were, they were limited by necessity, which mm-hmm. meant that even, uh, first of all, if you were to communicate outside of Area 51, Mm -hmm. it would very quickly become obvious who was talking because it would all be dependent upon what they knew. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were talking about stuff that you knew, but you didn't know other things that narrows down that list of suspects Mm -hmm. and there could be some pretty serious penalties. We're talking like scary, scary penalties that could go against Mm -hmm. you if you were to spill the beans.
1: And those people also, this is a side note, but I think this is a, a illustrative of the Kind of scrutiny that these folks were under afterwards. The IRS uh, keeps a tab for on these people afterward to verify that they're not suddenly coming into inexplicable amounts of income.
0: Ah, to make sure that they're not like selling
1: secrets. Right. What even though if you, I mean, even though if you think about it, man, those secrets. I'm air quoting so hard here, folks. Those secrets would be things like. Um, I was paid to drive a truck from Rachel to this location. And drop uh, off fuel. Right. Yeah. And, and I didn't, you know, there were three gates. I got into one or something like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's for sake of example. I don't know if there was a number of tiered gates. Yeah, so please, don't quote me.
0: Please, Area 51, don't, don't come after <laughs> us. We have not been there, nor have we tried to look. Um, so. <laughs> the yeah the, during the the lifetime of the the test site which again bordered area 51 mm-hmm. uh it was pretty active they did 105 above ground explosions and more than 800 underground explosions they would do their last test in 1992 so this was kind of a just a fact of life at area 51 is that nuclear testing was going on i mean several miles away i don't want to give the implication that it was like just outside the gates but it was certainly close enough for it to be a a
1: concern yeah because uh, and also a lot of people were probably surprised to hear that that continued until 1992 yeah. so you know most people will place the end of the cold war in the late 80s yeah. but this doesn't mean that the the testing would stop completely because uh, just as a Cold War has kind of a hazy conflict zone, it also has a hazy beginning and end. Whereas yeah. we can trace World War II with uh, some concrete dates.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, if, if nothing else, you can go with the declaration of war and the treaties that ended it.
1: Exactly. But
0: uh, when you get down to this, you also have uh, the first acknowledgement that there was actually something there, mm-hmm. which comes in a uh, a booklet that the uh, Atomic Energy Commission put out that was titled Background on Nevada Nuclear Tests. And it came out in 1957 and it mentions a facility at Groom Lake, but in that one, it's called the Watertown Project Mm -hmm. and that it was meant to study the weather.
1: Ah, and ladies and gentlemen... Remember that last fact because it comes into play later. Right, in two episodes
0: we will cover the <laughs> the weather part of the mythology of Area Fifty One. It's interesting though because it gives you yet another name for this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I tend to call it Area Fifty One when I mention it to other folks. I usually say Groom Lake because that's the official designation. Sure, but Area Fifty One being probably the the popular. Uh, term is the one that I, I tend to say in this in my notes here.
1: Yeah. Area 51 is sort of the street name for Groom Lake. Yeah. Nickname. But there's uh, I think one thing that we should talk about real quick is the nature of secrecy, because we, we mentioned a little bit about how people who are helping, even in a small way, uh, had. Things that are essentially gag orders for life, yeah, and uh, again that this comes under the curtain of national security or the purview rather, uh, which gives the the acting government agencies tremendous powers in pursuit of that goal. So one of the big questions is, you know, if Area Fifty One was first publicly acknowledged, albeit under another name, in nineteen fifty seven. Then uh, clearly the people, at least in Rachel, Nevada, knew something was there, just like the people uh, in the town surrounding Oak Ridge knew something was there. Yeah. And
0: the fact that you had people commuting in from places like Las Vegas Mm -hmm. or from California who are flying in, the construction crews who are coming in to build out the facility meant that there's some folks who know that something is going on. They may not know the full extent of what the purpose is. But uh, it's, it's what's really interesting is that a lot of the documents that have come out since then, most of them avoid naming the facility at all or the name has been redacted. It's been mm-hmm. blacked out. Um, and a lot of the information I've read has suggested that in the two or three times that it hasn't been that it's been in an mm-hmm. official document. They think that it was an oversight that someone had failed to black it out or yeah, their redacted. marker
1: ran out. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: They were like, do you have another Sharpie? Uh, no one's going to Oh, read this it's 430. Let's fine. go. <laughs> yeah, gotta, uh, uh, so for, yeah, it's yeah. funny that the only reason why we really have a lot of information on it at all is because it could just have been an oversight from someone who mm-hmm. failed to mark that part out.
1: Thank you for being in a hurry <laughs> at work. Uh, the Uncle Sam employees, but, but with this idea about privacy, one of the big questions is, well, of course we know. It's near Las Vegas yeah right Las mm-hmm. Vegas at this point already big airport hub right so so how do they keep these planes from figuring out what's going on
0: yeah they ended up creating a restricted air zone where not even military aircraft were allowed to pass through without authorization and by authorization I usually mean that the military aircraft probably took off from Area 51, went on some sort of test flight, which could go outside the restricted airspace. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but then would be allowed to come back in if it were any other military flight. Let's say it's a training exercise from Nellis or something along those mm-hmm. lines. They expressly were told they could not fly through this particular zone, which originally was five by nine nautical miles, which is about nine by 17 kilometers. Mm-hmm. And the uh, it went all the way up to space. It's time for another quick break, but we'll be right back. So, (laughs) not the time. Your commercial aircraft tended to fly at an altitude of around 20,000 feet. And your military aircraft might go up to 40,000 feet. But we're talking spy planes that were designed to fly at 60,000 feet or higher. So, these altitudes meant that, you know, you didn't want aircraft coming in and seeing something flying above them, they could actually have a pretty good view of that. In fact, that did happen quite a few times, which lent uh, some, it ended up being not as big an issue because a lot of people assumed it was
1: something otherworldly that they were seeing. Right. Yes. And this, this is one of the, the big facts that, later will later we'll see um, provides an explanation to some of this, because at this time for people surrounding the area right, yeah. who were just, you know, just your regular civilians, yeah. they would they would eventually turn to one another and say, what the heck is going on up there? Did you see that? Well,
0: especially since a lot of these test flights took place at night. Right. So instead of being able to actually see an aircraft, all you see are the lights. And some of these uh, aircraft were designed to travel at remarkable speeds, particularly mm. compared against the state-of-the-art aircraft in other fields. Like a commercial aircraft could not hope to keep up with Yo. some of these. Some of these were going Mach 3. I mean, we're talking supersonic speeds here. And at that speed, seeing a light travel that quickly could be a real head-scratcher if you didn't know that, in fact, this was a a spy plane developed by the United States
1: government. Right. And that's how these things that's how these things can uh evolve. Uh, just imagine, if you will, and this is hypothetical, mm-hmm. an ex-airline pilot mm-hmm. saying, well, I flew planes or a World War Two veteran yeah. saying, you know, I was a pilot in uh, the Pacific theater and there is no earthly craft that could do this. So that's where we see people making the leap. And again, in the absence of transparency, going with what they think is the I want to say the most probable idea, but really it's the most exciting and the coolest.
0: Yeah. It's one of those things where if you can't conceive of people being able to accomplish that. Right. Then what else could it be? Right. Right. So it's one of those things where you think I have never in my life traveled in a vehicle that is capable of moving at that speed I don't know of anything that humans have built that could do it. Then you start saying, well, if humans didn't build it, who did? And then mm-hmm. you go to the little gray men or a little green men.
1: Right. And it's weird because we, you know, if I could do a little bit of a sidebar here, man, uh, we see this kind of reasoning pop up throughout history. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like no one could build the pyramids because look at how big they are. There's no way they had the technology. Therefore, aliens had to do it.
1: Right. Exactly. And in and, and a lot of times that situation is bound up in assumptions about human potential. Absolutely. And and we don't want to we don't want to take away from right now the frankly astonishing and extraordinary things that human beings were doing at Lake.
0: Yeah, the engineering was phenomenal. So. That's relatively small, restricted airspace I talked about. Mm -hmm. By 1962, when they started working on other projects besides the U-2 spy plane, which, again, wasn't developed at Groom Lake, but it was it was tested there quite a bit. um, They would expand it to an area of 22 by 20 nautical miles, which is 41 by 37 kilometers. And it became known as groom box or just the box that you were not allowed to enter the box unless you were expressly told to. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were a few times where pilots might accidentally or perhaps cheekily mm-hmm. skirt the box and were told in no uncertain terms to get the heck out of it uh, before they might
1: be fired upon. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like
0: be forced to the ground or fired upon. I mean, we're this serious business. So the first spy plane they started to really work on at Groom Lake after the U-2 was the A-12. You're going to get a lot of letters and numbers in these Mm -hmm. episodes. Um, This was part of Project Oxcart. Uh, So in 1962, the first A-12 spy plane arrives at Groom Lake. And it wouldn't be until, I think, the following year that CIA pilots would actually be able to fly it. So it had been at Groom Lake for about a year before it was being flown in tests. So it was meant to be a more capable spy plane than the U-2, and its major difference was that it traveled way faster.
1: Right, and this this was, I mean, clearly there's an advantage there, but also uh, while it was traveling faster, it was reducing the footprint that it leaves on a radar.
0: Yeah, so it was partly to try and, and find a way, because the U-2 has very, very wide wings, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's yep. very long and very wide. It's also, from what I understand, a true bear to fly. Like it's, it's supposed to be one of the hardest planes to fly and land.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, I like that you added and land. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good point because it was built for the, the specs for which it was built and the expectations of this plane are in some ways contradictory to what makes a good Plane. Yeah, it it
0: made it possible to fly it at incredibly high altitudes, which was important for the spying purposes and also just to uh, evade um, uh, things like like uh, missile fire. Although what was happening was missile technology was catching up to aircraft technology, which was again the reason why they had to start developing things like the A twelve. So the Oxcart program required the the Groom Lake facility to expand and include more facilities just for military and civilians alike. So it had to, had to have more buildings. And that mm. means you have to hire construction crews and figure out what you're going to do. Uh, the A-12 also needed a longer and stronger runway than what was at Groom Lake. So they had to reinforce the existing, um, uh, runway and extend it out further or else this plane would not be able to take off and land. So. Cleared construction workers. These are civilians. Security clearance. They would take. Uh, exactly. They would take either a C-47 out of Burbank, California, or a D-18 out of Las Vegas. So both of those planes were military transport aircraft. And uh, the secrecy around those aircraft fueled the rumors and suspicion about what was going on at Groom Lake for years, because you'd have these aircraft lining up at uh, various airports and yeah, yeah. there'd be no designation. I mean, like, you had to know about it in order to be able to get on it and be cleared for it, which meant that if you were paying attention just as a commuter going through these air- airports, you'd think, what's going on over there? Where like, are
1: those people going?
0: Yeah, there's no, there's no indication of what's happening here.
1: And they weren't flown back immediately either.
0: Right, they weren't doing this every day because that's just not, that's just not, uh, you know, efficient. Mm-hmm. So what they had to do was build some, some, uh, uh, like sleeping facilities, essentially trailers originally out at at Groom Lake and people would spend the week there. And then over the at the end of the week, they could fly back and go Mm -hmm. home. But for the duration of the week, they would be at the facility, you know, pretty much cut
1: off from the world working on this stuff. And you have a great side note that I thought was fascinating. This is something that I did not know. So you're talking about how in Nevada, if you work 48 hours or longer in the state for
0: any given project, you are required by law to have your name recorded so that you would have to show up on a state you know, document somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the folks over at Area 51, the CIA in particular, didn't really like that idea too much because in theory, if you got hold of that list and you made a Uh, you cross-reference and you figured out where everybody was from, what companies they worked Mm -hmm. for. Yep. You could then start to figure out, wait, based upon what this company does, I have an idea of what's going on at this secret facility that they're going to, uh, in Nevada that, you know, I know they're going there because their names are showing up on the state list. Right. So again, out of the concern for national security, they had to figure out a way, well, how do we keep people's names off this list and how do we do it so it's legal? Uh, because if you start doing illegal things and that catches up to you, it's the same problem. So they say, ha ha, we found a loophole. It turns out that government uh, workers were exempt from this 48 hour work rule in Nevada. If you worked for the government, you did not have to have your name recorded. Mm-hmm. So every single person who worked on that construction crew became listed as a government consultant everyone became a government consultant for the the purposes of working at area 51
1: which is uh a lot better than uh some of the alternatives which would just be not having a job but yeah but also it's very it's it's strange when you think about it because when we say construction we also mean like the caterers <laughs> yeah
0: absolutely there are stories that uh that the food at area 51 was actually quite good they said that they would fly down occasionally, uh, a, a chef from Las Vegas who would cook, which means that someone like chefs in Las Vegas had to sign secrecy oaths uh-huh. so that they could go there. Now, granted, when you were, when you were going there, you might have, uh, a lot of secrecy, not just the fact that, you know, you're flying on a plane that's not listed anywhere else.
1: So you don't know where you're going. You exactly. might, you
0: might be put into a transport that has curtains all along it. So you mm-hmm. don't get a real view of what's going on. All the different buildings are uh, uh, you know, essentially hidden from view from each other. So you're not going to be able to look in and see what people are working on. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really I mean, like there were times where people were required to stay in their office while an aircraft was being wheeled either in or out of a hangar because they weren't allowed to see that aircraft.
1: Which, again, makes sense, because in retrospect, as paranoid as this sounds, in retrospect, we know uh, a little bit about the extent of KGB uh, spying yeah. in the United States. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, there, there have been KGBs, that, KGB spies that have infiltrated the CIA and the FBI. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, the, their their entire stories, fascinating stories mm-hmm. about people who were able to do that, double agents and all this kind of stuff. And and with that in mind, you know, yeah,
1: it sounds paranoid, but if you don't take these
0: incredible precautions, you set yourself
1: up. And now these precautions are, oh, I never get to do this catchphrase. Now, more than ever, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the government was saying to uh, various departments or the government departments were saying to one another, we have to have this secrecy because business at Groom Lake is booming.
0: Yeah, they ended up uh, for some of the buildings,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: you're trying to you're, you have a black budget, which you, it's hard to tell where mm. that money's going to go. In a right? lot
1: of ways, it appears to be a blank check.
0: Yeah, but they were still being pretty careful. I mean, they they didn't just build state-of-the-art facilities. It's not like if you were to go to Area 51, especially if you went to Area 51 back in like 1965 or so, mm-hmm. it's not like you were going to walk into a super awesome state-of-the-art facility. They bought surplus buildings from right. the Navy. They had Navy hangars and Navy surplus housing buildings that had been disassembled, packed into cargo planes or on on trucks, shipped out to Groom Lake and then reassembled on the site. So we're not talking
1: like the Hilton. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, they were not cushy uh, accommodations. So getting back to the Oxcart aircraft, I have Mm -hmm. an account of a test flight. Ah, yes. That explains how uh, quick. Quickly, this thing traveled and and sort of the extent of the test flight. So remember, I said these test aircraft weren't confined to that restricted airspace. They could actually leave that restricted airspace depending upon the actual uh, requirements of the test. So an impressive demonstration of the Oxcart's capability occurred on 21st December 1966. When Lockheed test pilot Bill Parks flew 10,198 statute miles in six hours, the aircraft left the test area in Nevada and flew northward over Yellowstone National Park, thence eastward to Bismarck, North Dakota, and on to Duluth, Minnesota. It then turned south and passed Atlanta en route to Tampa, Florida, then northwest to Portland, Oregon, then southwest to Nevada. Again, the flight turned eastward, passing Denver and St. Louis, turning around at Knoxville, Tennessee. It passed Memphis in the home stretch back to Nevada. This flight established a record unapproachable by any other aircraft. It began at about the same time a typical government employee starts his workday and ended two hours before his quitting time. So that's a pretty interesting tour of the United States right
1: there. That's amazing. Yeah. That is literally a whirlwind tour. Yeah.
0: No, the fact that it goes to just about everywhere in the U.S. besides mm-hmm. the Northeast, right? Yeah. Or the, the, you know, the not Alaska or Hawaii, obviously. Right, but, right. But yeah, it's pretty impressive. So during the whole history of the A-12, only 13 were built. And out of those 13, four crashed in some sort of case or another. Mm-hmm. Um So that was a. it was never meant to be this is going to be the replacement U-2. It was more like we are going to test all of these technologies that we've developed with this plane and then see which ones work best. And those will inform the design of what will become the U-2 successor. Right.
1: So one important part for us to remember about that is that this means the the four that crashed as well as the 13 total that were built, uh, the remaining nine, are all going to be a little bit different. They're variations on a theme with further improvements, Absolutely.
0: right? Absolutely, yeah. It's not like they are cookie cutter uh, designs that are coming out of this. And that concludes part one of the history of Area 51, a series that originally began publishing back on September 15th, 2014. We will be back next week with the continuation of these classic episodes. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app